Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. We will be in verses 4 through 7 this morning as we continue our look through this book of beginnings. And here we enter into a section we will be in for the next few weeks as we transition from the broad historical account of the creation of the world and focus in more specifically on the creation of man and the history of man up to the fall. So this morning we will be in verses 4 through 7, but before we do, please join me in asking the Lord's favor on our time and his word this morning. Dear Lord, we praise you, we thank you for your good and gracious and generous, and as we just sang, Lord, you are great. You are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Lord, may that reality be even more clear to us as we enter your word this morning, and especially to this account, Lord, as we see the creation of the man from the dust. Lord, how can dust praise you? How can dust receive the words of the Almighty? What is man, Lord, that you are mindful of him? It is by your grace and to the praise of your glorious grace, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. May we be humbled as we see your glory displayed in this text this morning. And help me, O Lord, to preach uh, with precision today. In your name, amen. Well, if you ask any gardener worth his medal, what he must do to ensure a good garden, most of them will give you the same answer. There is one crucial step that every gardener must do to ensure the goodness of his garden. If he is to grow anything worth growing or harvest anything worth harvesting, he must ensure that his garden is free of weeds. Weeds are the scourge of gardeners the world over across time and culture. These unwanted plants will leach the life-giving nutrients out of the soil, leaving your fruits and vegetables starved and leaving you with a sad and paltry harvest. Beloved, I believe this is analogous to many of the times we come to the Word of God. This is not to say that there are weeds in the Word of God, for all of Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for reproof, correction, teaching, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. No, rather the weeds, if you will, are in us, in our minds and in our hearts. So often we come to God's good and glorious word with pride or arrogance. We come to it with doubts. We come to it with misinformation or misconceptions, false ideas about God's word. And so often these, if they are left unchecked in our minds and in our hearts will choke the life out of the word before it enters into our hearts. So beloved, we have seen some of these throughout the book of Genesis so far and we will continue to see them. There are many doubts, many misconceptions, much information, misinformation surrounding the book of Genesis and our passage is no different. So beloved, I find it necessary to do some weeding and I will spend Hopefully a brief amount of time, as you can see in our notes, defending the historical accuracy of Genesis 2, 4 through 7. And really, this will broadly apply to Genesis 1 through 11. And my defense 
really is that Genesis 1 through 11 is historically accurate in all of its details when accounting for the normal use of language and literary devices. Genesis 1 through 11 is historically accurate in all of its details when accounting for the use of language and literary devices. And so I'll briefly go over some of the questions over this passage and over Genesis 1 through 11 before entering into the exegesis of our passage this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, and for the first section of Genesis, there is a looming question that many have posed. Is this section of Genesis myth? Is it history? Or is it this other thing that many have called mytho-history? In other words, is it meant to be taken as historically accurate? Is it meant to be not taken as historically accurate? Or, as, was, as is the idea of mytho-history, is it meant to be taken as a historical account that is robed in fantastical language, such that it does depict real events, but the details are not meant to be taken as accurate? You will hear me refer to the claims of Dr. William Lane Craig as he is perhaps one of the more famous proponents of the idea of mytho-history. And in his arguments, essentially, the, the question of whether or not Genesis is myth-history or mytho-history comes down to these two questions that I have given you. Does it contain inconsistencies? And are there fantastical elements? So first, let me briefly address the charge that Genesis 2, 4 through 7 has inconsistencies. These inconsistencies in our passage, you can see in 2, 4 through 7, uh, there are a few of them that, uh, that Dr. Craig and others will claim. First is the use of God's name. In Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim over and over again, translated in your word as God. Whereas multiple times in the rest of Genesis, he is referred to as Yahweh or Jehovah, the personal name of God. And many have pointed to this and said that this is a clear inconsistency that he would be depicted as the transcendent God in one chapter and the personal God in other chapters. And so obviously this indicates that uh, the author wasn't really concerned with consistency or logical congruity and therefore it is to be taken as myth. However, we must ask why would the author use one name in one case and another in another case. After all, authors use multiple titles for God throughout Scripture. And it makes sense that in Genesis 1, which is the grand view of the narrative of God's creation of the world, that he would use Elohim, the grand and more general name for God as we look at creation in general. But then in chapter 2, we zoom into human history, we have the broad in Genesis 1 and then the specific in Genesis 2. The general in one and the intimate in the other. And so this is not a shift in writing style. This is not a shift in genre. Rather, this is a shift in focus. And we are familiar with shifts in focus throughout Scripture. We can see that in the Gospel. We are familiar with shifts in emphases throughout Scripture. And we are even familiar with it in our own stories. One of my favorite examples to use is Star Wars. How often have you seen a Star Wars movie in the beginning of it, or at least the beginning of the good Star Wars movies? You know the ones that I'm talking about. 
It begins with this loud, victorious, boisterous music and the text crawl going through the stars, giving you the grand narrative up to the point of the movie. And then once the music begins to die down and the words drift off into deep space, the camera pans down and gives you the story in a more focused way. It goes from general to specific, from written narrative to visual narrative. We're familiar with this idea of shifting focus. And so to use Elohim in chapter one and Yahweh in chapter two is no inconsistency. Rather, it denotes a shift in focus from the general story of creation to the specific story of human history. Another inconsistency that is brought up in, a rather supposed inconsistency that is brought up in this passage is the idea that man was created before plants. They'll point to this passage and see that chapter five seems to depict the time period in which the creation of man takes place. And it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was no man to work the ground, verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man from the ground. And so the charge is, Obviously, in Genesis 1, verse 11, we have the creation of plants on day three, and then the creation of man on day six. And it seems like this passage would say that the creation of man happened when there was no plant yet created. And so the charge is that there is an inconsistency between one and two. And obviously, the author would have known that this is an inconsistency, but he didn't seem to care because he is writing myth. Beloved, we must be precise in our reading and interpretation of scripture. We must be precise. Our Lord Jesus is precise. His apostle Paul is precise. They argued for doctrines of scripture based on the forms of single words of scripture. Every single word is inspired by God. Every single word matters. And so we must pay attention to the words of scripture. We must be precise. Does Genesis chapter two say that God created man and then plants? Well, let's look at the text in chapter two, verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, Verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. We must notice some differences between chapter one, verse 11, and chapter two, verse five. First of all, this word bush does not show up in chapter one. This designation of the field used for both bush and plant in two, five does not happen in Genesis one. And finally, this word in two, five, they had not yet sprung up is different than the word for sprouting in Genesis 1. This seems to be depicting a different event than the creation of all plant matter. And there are different explanations as to what is being talked about. Perhaps it is flashing back to the third day of creation. Perhaps it is looking forward to the fall of man and the thorns and thistles that would be produced. Or perhaps the creation of plants happened on day three and the sprouting of certain plants that were created on day three were withheld until the creation of man so that man could cultivate them. I'll talk about that in more detail in my exegesis, but for now, please be aware that Genesis 2 does not say that God created man and then plants. And there are 
different arguments that can be made, but most agree that this is not speaking of the creation of man and then subsequently the creation of plants. This is no inconsistency. And then finally, there is a charge of inconsistency when in the creation of man. Dr. Craig says that the creation of man depicts him as a humanoid deity. And so how do we have this transcendent God creating everything in chapter one and a a humanoid deity creating man in chapter two? What he is referring to is anthropomorphic language used in chapter two. And we must realize that while scripture often uses anthropomorphic language to accentuate or highlight a certain aspect of God's condescending love toward man, it does not attribute human nature to God and does not depict him as a humanoid deity. We must also be aware that there are times where God temporarily manifests in a physical form, as in the burning bush, he presents himself in a physical form temporarily in the burning bush or as he wrestles with Jacob or to Manoah and his wife or as the commander of the Lord's army. We call these theophanies. Uh, but these are not to say that God is a humanoid deity, but rather he temporarily shows himself in a human form in order to interact with his people. But I don't think that's what we see here. What we see here is this idea of God breathing into man the breath of life. Now, obviously, in order to breathe, you need lungs. You need to breathe air. And so I think what Dr. Craig is getting at is that if we say that God breathed into man the breath of life, then obviously we are attributing human attributes to a spiritual God. Therefore, it depicts him as a humanoid deity. I do believe that goes a little too far, but I also believe that we see anthropomorphic language attributing human attributes to God throughout scripture. But anthropomorphic language is nothing new to the ancient Near Eastern people and nothing new to Israel's uh, literature, to Hebrew literature, and it would be understood that these are figurative turns of phrases. These are literary devices used to accentuate God's condescending love to his people, depicting him in a way that makes sense to us. And so accounting for the use of literary devices, I don't think we can say that there's an inconsistency in this passage. Finally, proponents of Genesis as mytho-history will point to fantastical elements. Dr. Craig defines fantastical elements as details that are so extraordinary as to be palpably false. You can read that in his book. And by what standard do we judge something to be so extraordinary as to be palpably false? Well, in some of his examples, he points to the creation of the world in six days. He points to the creation of vegetation and the sprouting of vegetation in 24 hours and says, obviously, the author knew that plants could not naturally spring up in 24 hours, so he must have considered this to be so extraordinary as to be false. He points to the receding of the waters that the dry land appears, and says, obviously, waters could not drain into the earth over the course of 24 hours, so the author clearly would have considered this to be extraordinary and palpably false. He also points to the flood, and and in pointing to the flood, he says, 
We clearly know through history that the flood was not worldwide. Therefore, when the author depicts a worldwide flood, he must have known that this was so fantastical, so extraordinary as to be clearly false. Beloved, it seems to me, I may be wrong, I admit that I have not spoken with Dr. Craig or other uh, people, uh, proponents of mytho-history who have spent much time in this. I haven't read everything that they've written, although I've read a bit. And what I've seen is that oftentimes it, their view comes with a presupposition. Is that if we come to the scriptures presupposing that plant life was not created in a day, that the waters did not recede in a day, that the flood was not worldwide, then we will conclude that the ancient people didn't think those things could happen. And therefore, we conclude these things couldn't happen. You see the problem with the argument. I know these things couldn't happen. And therefore, when I read it in the text, I can conclude it doesn't happen. How do I know these things didn't happen? Because I know these things didn't happen. And so, beloved, again, we must come to the word both with precision and with humility. We are designed to be revelation receivers. We are designed by God to view his world in the light of his word, not the other way around. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We are to lean not on our own understanding, but to trust the Lord. And beloved, the Bible is full of fantastical and extraordinary details. This is a God who sent 10 plagues to save his people. This is a God who parted the waters such that his people walked across dry land. This is a God who gave children to barren women. This is a God who sent promises and prophets to his people. This is a God who sent his son born of a virgin. This is a God who saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is a God who raised our Lord from the dead. This is our God who will bring us into his everlasting kingdom where we will see the king in his beauty and glorify and enjoy him forever in sinless perfection. These are fantastic elements. These are extraordinary details because our God is fantastic. He is extraordinary. And so we trust him and his word. With this brief defense of the historical accuracy of the details of our passage, I invite you to read Genesis 2, 4 through 7, and may the Lord humble us and open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of his law. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, the word of the Lord reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." These are the words of our Lord. Beloved, I believe this passage leads us to a question. 
What is humility? And what does humility require? Humility is vital for us, beloved. Isaiah 66, second half of verse two, God says to his people, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James chapter four, verse six, our Lord through his apostles says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is humility and what does it require? Author C.J. Mahaney defines humility as honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I think he gets it right, but humbly I would like to modify his definition so that it can apply beyond fallen man, but to man before and after the fall. I would argue humility is a way of thinking of oneself in light of God's revelation, especially in light of his word. We must view ourselves rightly. That is a prerequisite for humility. Humility is not constantly thinking low of yourself. It is not constantly berating yourself. It is not saying, woe is me, all the time. Humility is rightly seeing yourself in light of what God says about himself, about his world, about his agenda for history, and about your place in it. And in Genesis 2, 4 through 7, we see the essential truths that will lead us to humility. Our passage introduces the story of humanity so that we might better understand the manner in and purpose for which the Lord God fashioned us, as well as our role in his world, that we might have great and humble adoration of him. And this begins, I believe, beloved, with verse 4. Verse 4 reads, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. We see one of these framing devices that we see throughout Genesis, the Toledotes, the generation verses. Throughout Genesis, we will see that phrase repeated, these are the generations, and these introduce major shifts in the narrative throughout, generation, throughout Genesis. And in our passage, oftentimes these introduce genealogies, but in our passage, we see these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Essentially, the introduction to this shift says, here is the story of creation. Here's the story of God's world. And an essential thing to notice is that this introduction does not have us in it. Obviously, as we go on through scripture, we will see human history as God has revealed it to us. But an essential thing we must understand, if we are to understand God's word at all, we must understand that it is not ultimately about us. Scripture is not ultimately about us. History is not ultimately about us. Rather, it is about God and his glory. The glory that he displays in creation and in his sovereign ordination of history throughout generations. The story is not about us, beloved. It is about God. Romans 11.3, pardon me, Romans 11.36 For from him, speaking of Christ, from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You can think of Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And because of this, Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our life is not about us. It is about God and his glory. And in that, beloved, there is goodness that the Lord has made creation, the Lord has made all of history about nothing and for nothing but the greatest good, the highest good. He is the source and standard of all goodness and beauty and truth and all creation is to the good, true, and beautiful God. To make the story, if you will, about anything else is to make it about something lesser, about something low, about something not worthy of the story. But God has made it all about him. And he invites us to enjoy his glory forever through the person and work of his son. And so as we see history unfold through his word, we must remember it's not about us. It is about him and his glory. And so we see God reveal human history for his glory. And he shows us the manner and purpose for which he fashioned us, as well as our role in his world, that we might humbly adore him. And he does this by showing three aspects of his fashioning of man in this passage his fashioning of man in this passage. First, we see that man is fashioned to be a cultivator. Man is fashioned to be a cultivator, one who cultivates the gifts, the creation that God gave him. And I believe that we see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. As I alluded to earlier, there are different ideas as to what this verse is saying. Some believe that it is flashing back to day three, and perhaps it could be better translated previously or before God had created the plants, but now God is creating man. It's sort of reviewing the story up to now. I don't think that accounts for the use of the words that is being used in this verse, nor do I think it accounts for all the information in this passage. There are others who would say that this actually looks forward to the fall and saying this is before the thorns and thistles come in and before man cultivates the ground in toil and in pain. However, again, I don't believe, while this is within the semantic range of the words, I don't think that is the plain use of these words. And also, uh, one of the arguments they have is that it says that there was no man to cultivate the ground. And this phrase is used later on in the fall when God says that in pain and in toil man will cultivate or work the ground. However, that word is used before the fall. And it's used just 10 verses later in 2.15 where God places man in the garden to cultivate and keep it. To work and keep it. Work is not a result of the fall. Toil and pain in work is a result of the fall, but work was created for God's perfect world. 
Cultivation or work is one of the means by which we enjoy rest. One of the means by which we enjoy God's good blessings. We are not meant to be passive enjoyers of God's blessings, but rather we are meant to cultivate what God has given us so that we might enjoy his gifts and thus enjoy him all the more. And so I think what we see in this passage is that there are certain plants for cultivation. Again, we see that these are bushes of the field and these are plants of the field. And why did they not spring up? We see later in the verse, because there was no man to work or cultivate the ground. I think that alludes to the idea that these are specific plants for cultivation. And so I would argue that while God creates all plant life in chapter 1, he withholds the sprouting of some of those plants, specifically the cultivated plants, in anticipation for the creation of the man that he will create to cultivate the ground. And this, beloved, shows us that God created his creation for man and man for his creation. Dr. Abner Chow likes to use the word man-hugger. We have tree-huggers in our culture, but he says that creation is a man-hugger in paradise. It is waiting for man. It wants man. It is eager for the arrival of man to cultivate and to keep it. Creation is not antithetical to man. And man is not a blight on creation, but rather God created creation so that his image bearers could glorify him and enjoy him through its cultivation. And God created his image bearers to glorify and enjoy him through the cultivation of his creation. And so, beloved, man is fashioned to be a cultivator. He is fashioned to be a cultivator. And this... Beloved, applies to more than just our work in a garden. Yes, most immediately, this is work in a garden, but as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, our work in different areas of life is all meant to be to the glory and enjoyment of God forever. This applies to our work, to our workplaces. You can see that in Colossians 3, 22 through 25. Though written to slaves, the closest modern equivalent to this passage would be employment. And we are commanded to obey our earthly masters in everything, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Later on in 24, verse 24 of that passage, Paul says, you are serving the Lord. Your service in your work is your service, and therefore your enjoyment of God. We work for the Lord. We cultivate in our workplace for the Lord. This also applies to our ministry. And even if you are not a pastor, you have a ministry. You are called to make disciples of all nations. We see in Ephesians 4 that God gave the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service so that we would all grow up into the likeness of Christ. And so we are called to be cultivators, both in our workplace and in our ministries, in our work of making disciples of all nations. And I think it's fitting that very often throughout Scripture, the work of discipleship and the work of preaching the gospel is described in gardening language, planting seeds, 
good soil, watering, harvesting. Beloved, we are meant to be cultivators in ministry, in gospel ministry. As an extension of this, we are also called to be cultivators in our families, to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Beloved, if the Lord has blessed you with the family, you are called to glorify him and enjoy him by cultivating your position in the family, whether it is serving your parents or whether it is loving your wife or submitting to your husband or raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I love what Luther says about this. In response to the, the idea of many in his day that it was just too much work to get married and have children, kind of sounds like today, Luther says this, what does the Christian faith say to this idea? The Christian faith opens its eyes, looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit, and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man, and have from my body begotten this child, I also know for certain that it meets with your perfect pleasure. I confess to you that I am not worthy to rock this little babe or to wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of this child. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving your creature in your most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duty should be even more insignificant and despised. Neither frost nor heat, neither drudgery nor labor will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in your sight. God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because that parent is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. To summarize, fathers and mothers, if you are doing all to the glory of God, then you are pleasing to the Lord every time you change a diaper. We are called to be cultivators, cultivators in our workplace, in our ministry, and in our family. Man is fashioned to be a cultivator. He is also fashioned to be a living creature. You see that when God stoops down and lovingly crafts man, fashions man. This, this language is that of a master craftsman, a potter, if you will. And as he fashions man and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, he is fashioned to be a living creature. Here we see, as we often sing, beloved, two wonders. First, we are a creature. That is to say, we are of the dust. We see this in Psalm 90. Psalmist writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all our generations. Before the mountains were brought forth forever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are, as, but, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by our anger. By our wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, 
our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of, your life, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. We fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And beloved, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. We are creatures. We are of dust. We depend on the Lord for everything. Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being. We are creatures of dust. We depend on him for everything. And after the fall, our days in this life are short. And so we must depend on him all the more. Does not our Lord teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. We must have a right view of ourselves, beloved. A right view of ourselves requires that we understand that we are but dust and we depend on the Lord for everything. But we also see that we are a living creature, and while this idea of God breathing into our nostrils the breath of life doesn't necessarily uh, point to the fact that we are creatures that are spirit and physical, um, yet elsewhere in Scripture we see that we are spiritual, physical creatures, that we are in this life temporary and we are in the next eternal. We are living creatures. And so we are called to set our minds on things that are above. Yes, in this life there is toil and there is pain. In this life our outer selves waste away. But beloved, there is eternity on the horizon. We must understand that we depend on God for everything, both in this life and in the life to come. We must understand that while we are wasting away in this life, that we will live eternally either in God's kingdom or under his eternal wrath. To view ourselves and even to view others rightly, we must understand that we depend on God for everything in this life and the life to come and that we will be everlasting creatures either in his goodness, in his kingdom, or in his wrath. I like what C.S. Lewis says about this reality in The Weight of Glory. Speaking of considering the eternality of our neighbors, he says that the load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. In other words, he's saying I must remember the eternal life of my neighbor, the fact that he will live on forever, that we are not temporary. He goes on to say, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature of heaven or hell. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, Civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, or exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, 
Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Beloved, we must have a right view of ourselves and of those that are around us. Your parents are immortals. Your children are immortals. Your spouse is immortal. A creature of dust and a creature of eternity. We are creatures of dust and creatures of eternity. Therefore, what we do matters. What we say matters. How we raise our children matters. Husbands, the way you love your spouse day to day, moment by moment, matters. Wives, the way you love and submit to your husband day by day, moment by moment, matters. Our interactions with our neighbors with our brothers and sisters in Christ, all of it matters and all of it is to point us to the God who saves. All of it is to point one another to our glorious and gracious God. And then finally, man is fashioned to be a recipient. He is fashioned to be a recipient. First, he is a recipient of life. As we already saw in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. And in Hebrews 1, we see that the Lord upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, beloved, if God were to stop thinking of you for a moment, if such a thing were possible, if he were to stop upholding the universe, then it would all cease to be. Not that we would all die, but we would all simply cease to be. He upholds all of it by his powerful word. We are constant recipients of life from God. We also receive revelation. As I alluded to earlier, we are created to be revelation receivers. We are created to live our lives in light of God's revelation. And to step outside of the bounds of my text, just briefly, we see that in the creation narrative. We see that at the end of Genesis 1, and we see that in the rest of the story of the creation of man, that God creates man, and then he tells him what to do. He blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over all the livestock. Later on, he tells man that you may freely eat or eat for enjoyment or, or, or have enjoyment of all of the fruits in the garden, except for the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Man is not created and then left to his own devices to figure out what to do. Our need for revelation predates the fall. We are designed to live in the light of God's word. We are designed, fashioned to be revelation receivers. And then finally, beloved, we receive grace. We receive grace. Lord willing, as I've talked about humility, you have seen your pride. Lord willing, as we've seen what it means to live in light of God's word, live with a sober understanding of who God is and who we are and our place in his word that we've seen that we don't do this often. That even though it's not about us, 
Sometimes we live like it is. Husbands, sometimes you talk to your wives like it's about you. Wives, sometimes you talk to your husbands like it's about you. Children, sometimes you look at your parents like that relationship is about you. Parents, sometimes you look at your children seeking reputation, seeking their behavior to be about you. Sometimes we talk to one another, to our neighbors, like it's about us. We go to work thinking that it's about us. We drive on the 405 thinking that it's about us. Our life is not about us, Lord. Our life is not about us. Our life is not about us, and so often we live like it is. We need grace. We need grace because we are rebels. Rebels constantly seeking to be on the throne. Constantly seeking the position which only God deserves. Constantly seeking to stop glorifying the Lord, stop living like it's about Him for just a moment so it can be about us. We need grace. And we'll see our need for grace all the more as we continue on in Genesis and we see this man of dust, our first father, our federal head, our representative before God, fall and rebel against the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that in Adam all die. All of us inherit Adam's sin because he acted as our representative. And more than that, we walk naturally as our first father walked in rebellion against our Lord. We are sinners before the Lord. Cosmic rebels before the Lord. Constantly seeking to usurp his authority and place ourselves on the throne. And so we rebel against the Lord. We rebel in our relationships. We rebel against those who are around us. We rebel in the comfort of our car. We rebel, beloved. All of us have gone astray. All of us have gone astray. We need grace. And what does this grace look like? This grace looks like a representative as it was Adam who represented us before the Lord and led us into rebellion, so also we need a better representative, a second Adam, to represent us before the Father and to lead us into glorifying and enjoying him forever. We need a representative, and beloved, God has given us the grace of a representative in the person of Christ in Romans chapter 5, Paul says it like this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sins, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. To verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass 
brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one man's sin, the first Adam's sin, led to death and sin for all men. So also Christ comes as our representative. God the Son coming down and taking on a human nature. Truly God, truly man, representing us as the better Adam representing us in his obedience to the Lord, being free from sin, such that his righteousness might be credited to those of us who have believed on him. He died an atoning death, taking the punishment that we deserved, bearing our sins in his body on the cross. He rose from the grave on the third day, assuring that all those who are united to him can share in his resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, still truly God and truly man, assuring that God has approved our representative, not just by way of his deity, but also by way of his perfect humanity. And so all who are united to him can also receive approval from the Father. As Pastor Jeff told us earlier, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he is coming again, beloved to judge the living and the dead and to bring his perfect kingdom. We need a new representative and we have it in the person of Christ Jesus. And all those who trust in our new representative will not be put to shame. If you have not believed on Jesus, whether you're here for the first time or whether you grew up in church, if you have not sought the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus, I call you to believe on him now and to be saved. And what do we do in light of this? In light of our Lord who humbled himself, we also are humble. We judge ourselves rightly in the light of God's word. We do not seek our own interests, but the interests of others. As Paul says, we have this mind among ourselves. We have this way of thinking among ourselves, that we follow after Christ in humility. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. What's the result? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, what is humility? Humility is recognizing that it is not about you. It is about Jesus. It is not about you. It is about Jesus. From him, through him, and to him are all things. And all of history pushes forward to the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Beloved, when you go home today, husbands, when you speak to your wives, wives, when you speak to your husbands, when you interact with your family, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school, when you change your baby's diapers, it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you would humble us. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Would you humble us, Lord? Give us wisdom that we might judge ourselves aright in the light of your word. And remind us, Lord, always that this is all about you. It is all for you. And our lives, our moments, our words, our thoughts, attitudes, and actions are all to be to the praise of your glorious grace. And there is no greater life, Lord, than to live to the glory and enjoyment of you forever. It is what you made us for. And it is the longing of every heart to adore you, Lord, to be a recipient of the grace that you have so generously given us. So, Lord, humble us. Humble us, Lord, that we might live for you and glorify you. Pray this in your name. Amen.